Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. In companies where you do four-day weeks, you're looking for people who can ruthlessly prioritize yeah. who can knock out the one thing and then the next thing and then the next yeah, 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 you know yeah. who have moms who, yeah exactly right <laughs> you know who has that kind of time that yeah, kind yeah, of time yeah. management skill yeah, yeah, and resilience yeah. it's mothers yo technology what is it all about Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. I want to start this week with a question. Do you work too much? How many hours a week do you put in? What if I told you that you're doing it wrong? Given the levels of technology, automation, and general advances we have at our disposal in 2020, you should be working no more than four days a week. So not 40 hours, maybe 32, maybe 30. At least that is the argument of this week's guest, Alex Sujun Kim Pang. And he's the author of a new book called Shorter. No prizes for guessing what it's about. So what Alex did is he went around the world and he met companies in America, in Britain, in Japan, lots of other places, who have all decided to proactively cut the hours of their staff there's a catch. All the dozens of companies he spoke to went ahead and did this, but did not sacrifice either productivity, pay for their workers, or growth. And they're pulling it off. They are doing more by working less. And what Shorter is, is basically a how-to book for founders, chief executives, and working stiffs like you and me. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, well, that's just impossible. At least for my job. My job is that you just can't do it. Well, that's what I thought too. Hi. How you doing? You're Danny, I assume. I am, I am, I am. So come on in. Yeah, thanks. So last week, yeah. I drove down on a fabulously sunny day right. to Menlo Park, where Alex lives. And we sat down in his living room to talk about why, in fact, it may be possible, even for you or me. Enjoy. Thank you for having me at your house. Oh, of course. It's a pleasure. <laughs> so I read the book. Mm-hmm. I find it fascinating, especially coming from journalism where it's kind of typified by very antisocial and long hours. Can we start by just talking about where we are now? Not long ago, the kind of, it was typical, at least in the West, to work 14 hours. And now we're eight-ish, but it feels like we're a bit stuck 
in terms of how we approach work and think about work? Mm -hmm. Well, we are a bit stuck in the sense, if you look at the number of hours that people work on average, if you look at the graph of working hours since, let's say, you know, 1850 or so, Mm -hmm. in most of the world, it goes from 12 or 14 hours, 150 years ago, there's a steady decline to through about World War II, and then it continues to decline a little bit, but it really starts to flatten out maybe in the 1980s or so. The irony, of course, is that this is the time when you're getting computerization of the office, you're getting all kinds of automation technologies that you would think would make work even more efficient and continue to drive working hours down further. What seems to have happened is that instead, the productivity gains that have come from better technology have been absorbed either by capital or they've been buried under a rubble of poor management. The profits that have come from increased productivity have not been reflected in wages that have risen as quickly as productivity itself, right. but rather, you know, they've gone to stock dividends and right. or of company owners rather than rather right. than shared with employees. So the fruits of automation, in other words, have gone up rather than out. Yes. That's right. a good way of putting it. Right. This is not your first book on work. What brought you to this point, basically, right. to write this book? Well, you know, I've always been interested in the connection between technology and creativity and work. My previous book about rest looked at the role of rest in the lives of creative and prolific people. I started looking at the companies that eventually became, that I talk about in shorter because of an objection that people raised with sort of with the last book, which was that all the stuff that I was talking about made sense to them. So the takeaway of rest is that we should think of work and rest as partners rather than competitors. Okay. And and that for creative people, constructing workdays that layer periods of focused work and what I call deliberate rest helped people be more creative on a daily basis, but also have longer, more sustained careers. Right. This um, is the, the example of the Nobel Prize winners who kind of spend a lot of time hanging out. Exactly. You know, <laughs> and it also explains why, you know, you've got people, who, whether they're physicists or CEOs who are like really serious mountain climbers or mm. sailors, you know, who are working in very intensive competitive fields, but also have these hobbies that from the outside look like they absorb a lot of time and are distractions. Well, it turns out that those things are actually really valuable psychologically uh, sort of psychologically and, and mentally. Because you have no choice but to disconnect from your work. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Even people who are obsessed with their work and kind of like being obsessed yeah. benefit from being in situations where you have to focus on your handholds and you know where you're going on the mountain face or else. That ability to detach is a really good thing for everybody. And for people who are really passionate about their work, it's also important. But you have to have craft strategies for sort of for allowing that to happen. But, you know, when I was talking about the book, one of the things that became clear was that, you know, this is something that is accessible to people who make their own schedules, mm-hmm. say writers. Yeah. Um, but, you know, for people who are in more traditional professions, you know, this is a really hard thing to do. Yeah. And 
it made me think more about the kind of structural constraints that get in the way of our ability to build more rest into our lives. And I started looking at companies that were, in a sense, putting the lessons of rest into practice, sometimes by doing things like having nap pods or other kinds of programs like that. But then I stumbled on companies that were just going to four-day work weeks, you know, or six-hour days or other kinds of things, you know, other kinds of work time reduction without cutting salaries, without cutting productivity or, or to profitability. They were, in essence, doing five days worth of work in four. It's effectively a how-to yeah. for companies, CEOs, what have you, to basically have your people work less hours and trying to work around this, well, that's just not going to work for me. Right. It's not going to work for our industry. Right. The most surprising things uh, in doing the research was finding so many companies in so many different industries Mm. around the world that were doing this. Not just like, you know, guys selling the beach out of their cars. Um, (laughs) We're talking about Michelin-starred restaurants, software startups, design firms, places where overwork is the norm, where it's a badge of honor. Where it's deified. Yeah, where it's deified. That's what I want to get to because we are here in Silicon Valley where you're supposed to work every hour that God gives. Right. I don't know if you've talked to, if anybody listening in the background, that is the dog. He's come (laughs) for some love. Talk to CEOs about, or people who are working at these companies or people running these companies, how do they react to that? I've seen an interesting change in just the last year or so, where I would say... 100% of the time um, a year ago, you talked about this stuff and the reaction was like, this is complete madness. Yeah. Right. You know, nobody gets rich in Silicon Valley working less than 80 hours a week. Mm -hmm. And the model of success here is you work titanically long hours early in your career before your technical skills evaporate or, you know, the market changes. So that's simply how things work. And what I'm seeing now is... Not 100% of people responding that way, but maybe 95% of people responding that way. Right. And there's a, you know, and I think that there is a stratum here in the valley of people who recognize that under the right conditions, those kinds of hours maybe can bring some benefit. Mm-hmm. But if you want to not burn out at 30, if you want to build a company that can attract people of the same caliber as, yeah. you know, go to, you know, the big companies. And if you want a company that's going to be able to do good work over the long term, then constructing a system that is not designed to burn people out as quickly as possible maybe kind of makes some sense. You know, and I think we've got a couple examples of companies that have implemented much more rational kinds of ways of working. You know, Asana is a great example. Oh, really? Yeah. They have fairly firm rules about working 40-hour weeks. Yeah. You've got, you know, the base camp folks who, you know, do four-day weeks during the summers. You know, they've been very public about promoting the idea that it doesn't have to be crazy at work, as their, you know, as their last book puts it. A lot of the companies that you kind of include in the book, the kind of the criteria is you are putting in a system to work less. Yeah. But you are not cutting salaries and you are not expecting a dip in pro- in other words you don't have to sacrifice 
these key things in order to get the same result. Right. The objective is do five days worth of work in four days. Right. Or five, you know, five plus days. Yeah, yeah. And so the challenge is to figure out how to do that without sort of blowing up your client base or alienating people or crashing schedules. But it turns out that is more possible than you might imagine in a world where 60-hour weeks are the norm. You compare overwork to being like a public health issue akin to like smoking. Yeah. I mean, that comes from Jeffrey Pfeffer, who has this book called Working for, Dying for a Paycheck. Yeah. His argument is basically that when you look at the public, just the dollar costs in chronic health problems, lost productivity, et cetera, that come from overwork, long hours are as bad as smoking for the American economy, for people's health, et cetera. They're not as dramatically bad for for people's health, but once you add it all up, it actually is a pretty significant, significant issue. Some of the things that are brought out are things like the kind of levels of depression, for example, in the software industry. Right. And I think it's like 40% or something of people's engineers who are participating in some studies said they were depressed. Yeah. I mean, it was, you know, I think 40% said they were depressed. There were, you know, a, lar- a large percentage who said that they had, you know, one or more symptoms of burnout. The numbers are big, but unfortunately, the numbers are not that unusual in these kinds of intensive professions. You know, you can see similar things in healthcare, in law enforcement, you know, in yeah. the restaurant industry. I think software is maybe an especially public, uh, you know, public example, but unfortunately, it's not a unique one. Yeah. As I was reading the book, I was thinking of my own experience as a parent of young children you kind of then not long after get into that whole change. Mm-hmm. And for me, it was, and I think for every person who has kids, it's like all of a sudden you realize like, oh my God, I have to do so much more in so much less time. Yeah. And then you look back on what you were doing before and how much time you just waste. <laughs> There's only one way you're going to really realize that is if you actually have kids. You yeah. know? But it feels like there has to be a similar kind of experience here. And I just don't know how that manifests itself. If you're actually talking about moving, you know, we went from 14 hours a day, you know, industrial revolution times to eight, and now we're stuck, Mm -hmm. even though things are continuing to be automated. We generally have to do less in a broad-based way. Does it have to be an event, some kind of catastrophic public health issue that brings brings companies to a different conclusion. Mm -hmm. The people who are collecting these rents from these improved automation are the people who run these companies. Right. The executives. Yeah. And they're doing really well out of it. Yes. Now, you know, I think at companies where you you can effectively assume an infinitely large workforce, they don't have a lot of incentive to make these kinds of changes. Yeah. But this is one reason that in software, for example, you see this at smaller companies, places where, you know, you want Google level engineers, but mm. you can't pay those kinds of salaries. And in those kinds of environments, and I'm thinking particularly of a place called Cockroach Labs, which was started by some ex-Google people. They've mm-hmm. got offices in New York City, and they do a four-day week inspired partly by their experiences with Google's 20% time. Oh, which um, is the, the one day to work on your moonshot or whatever. Exactly. Maybe. And 
and their experience was that the 20% thing was awesome. And Cockroach Labs' own technology yeah. was based on ideas that they played around with then. Right. But, you know, the 20% time was something you had to fight for yourself. Right. It wasn't a structural thing that was built into the schedule. And they felt I've always like, wondered that because I was like, yeah. yeah, yeah, you can work four days a week here, basically. But uh, in practical terms, it doesn't feel like it's that. No, you know, it was four days a week if you could negotiate it yourself. Right. It kind of feels like these companies that offer unlimited holiday. Right. And it just feels like complete BS. Well, you know, what happens with unlimited <laughs> holidays is people actually take fewer days. Exactly. Than, you know, they exactly. would otherwise. Because while there is the formal policy, there are all these informal and cultural things that prevent people from taking them. And this is a problem that you have with, like, flexible work programs. Yeah. Right. You know. Yeah. 90 plus percent of law firms offer flexible work. 4% of employees take them basically because the worry is that if I sign up for this, it's going to take me off the partner track. Absolutely. You know, and my wife was formerly a corporate lawyer on that part. So I, I know right. very well. And it's like, yeah, you can do this if you want mm-hmm. to screw your career. No. And even in the best intentioned places, this is an issue, you know, and I think that for, you know, for people who who take who actually do sign up for those programs, you know what they often find is, yeah, you maybe can leave at three o'clock, but you have to do all this extra work in order to stay visible to your manager. Yeah. You know, to you know to make sure that people know that you're working and what you're working on. To generally not inconvenience the system for having the privilege of being able to pick up your kids. So. These are policies that turn out to have hidden costs that are very difficult to kind of uproot. Hmm. I think one of the benefits of the four-day week is not only is it useful as a recruitment tool in smaller companies, um, it's also valuable as a retention tool, but it also helps ease some of the kinds of problems that, that things like flexible work programs have. Because when working four days stops being something that, you know, just this one person in your, re- yeah. you know, in your group does. The lazy person. Yeah, the lazy person. It becomes something that everyone does. Yeah. All that extra coordination work, what sociologists call the flexibility stigma, all that stuff disappears. And it's no longer a question of whether whether one person isn't holding up their end or, you know, the one person who has to do twice as much now for the privilege of flexibility, it becomes something that everyone gets to benefit from together. So how do you do it? I'm CEO. I'm about to start my company. Mm -hmm. I don't know. E-commerce company. Sure. So selling stuff, I need to be available to my customers at all times, et cetera. Right. But I also want to, I can't pay a bajillion dollars for engineers, but if I can offer them four-day work weeks, maybe they'll leave Google and come work for me, et cetera. How do I do it? How do you do it? Okay. First of all, I will predict that you're going to do this partly for recruitment and retention for Mm -hmm. company stability, but also personally, you've either burned out or you've been, or you've become a parent. Everyone who, everyone at the top who decides to do this has one or both of those experiences. Oh, they've either burnt out or become a parent. Yeah. So That's interesting. Yeah. Well, it's funny. Um, Ariana Huffington, you know, who has her company Thrive, which she's talking about all these micro steps to kind of like take care of yourself, rest more, get better sleep, et cetera. Her moment 
mm-hmm. when she stopped doing all the other stuff is when she collapsed at her desk yeah. from burnout. Yeah. And like smashed her face on the floor. Um, she had lost a tooth, all this stuff. And it was like she was in hospital and she's like, mm, maybe I need to live a different way. Yeah. In both rest and shorter, one of the things that I saw was that no matter how smart you are, you have to learn this the hard way. <laughs> you know, and I've got in in rest. Yeah. You know, even like Charles Darwin or Tolstoy had these health scares or right. you know or worked themselves to exhaustion and then made changes. Even the most brilliant people have yeah. to be dumb about this before they can get smart. The good news is that no, basically, no matter where you are, it's not too late for you. Right. right. And if Einstein has to figure this out, it's okay if it takes takes the rest of us a yeah. little time. So how do you go about, so how do you do it? First off, internally, where most places, most companies start is by eliminating lots of meetings and cutting the remaining ones down to, you know, from an hour as a default to yeah. 15 or 20 minutes. Right. Nobody likes meetings. Most places don't run meetings very well. Everybody complains about them. So it's a kind of easy early win. And as a demonstration that you can actually implement structural changes that benefit everybody, it's a very good place to start. The next things that you do are, number one, lasso your most distracting technologies. Encourage people to either do things like check their email twice a day rather than, you know, 45 times a day. If you are in an office in which something like Slack or other kinds of services or, mm-hmm. you know, a distraction. Productivity try, tools. Yeah. You know, you kind of cut down on those things. And then the other thing is, that's really effective is to kind of ring fence the day so that you have particular times a day when it's perfectly okay to not answer the phone, to not talk to people, work on your most important stuff. And then you also have time where it is okay to be social, like lunch hour. And by having really clear divisions between that kind of focus time, between parts of the day when you can have meetings and parts of the day that are more explicitly social, you have the benefit both of increasing people's opportunities to do really significant heads down stuff without without destroying the social life of the office. People come to work, you know, partly to... For sure. Yeah. You know, hang out with other people. And so you don't want to kill that off. And then I think the final thing is that you have to allow people to experiment a lot with technologies and processes. If you've got good people working for you, you're not going to be able to tell them how to do five days worth of work in four. You got to let them figure it out themselves. Right. And part of what that involves is figuring out what tasks can be automated so that you have more time to focus on stuff that really matters. That kind of menu of things that you want to outsource or automate is going to be different for sort of every person. It's not necessarily stuff that you can predict in advance. And so allowing people to figure that stuff out for themselves, I think is actually is really important, not only because it allows them to be more productive, but it also creates for them space essentially to do higher value added work and to make themselves more valuable to the company as opposed to essentially automating themselves out of existence. Mm. So I think those are the things that you see in 
a lot of places. You know, and then the other, and then finally, you think about the kind of rhythm of your work, whether there is an advantage to going to a four-day week where, yeah. you know, you've just got one day off. In some industries, Friday is just always slow. You know, that's true in like advertising, for example. Yeah. And whereas in others, you really do need to be available to clients or customers. So you might move to a six-hour day. Yeah. Or there are some places where you're open 12 hours a day and you've got two shifts. This is important for, let's say, you know, garages or retail yeah. establishments. And you get the benefits both of having, you know, better salespeople or better repairs, but also, you know, you're open longer. So you've got more walk-in traffic. One of the things to remember is that very often one of the objections is you know, you can't do a four-day week or a six-hour day because, you know, business is now 24-7. Absolutely. But unless your workforce already is actually working 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and granted, there are a couple of factories in China where rumors are yeah. that this is going on, you actually know how to solve this kind of scheduling and shift problem. And you're just solving with slightly different parameters. And in the Valley, you ought to be able to do that. Yeah, exactly. So how does this fit, though? In your book and a lot of other things I've been reading recently about just the kind of the gigification of mm-hmm. work and how it is becoming less secure. Right. Because more things are being automated and your kind of companies are less inclined to actually hire people. Right. So are the kind of quote unquote gig workers or contract workers, are they just kind of out of luck? In other words, are they just going to have to work every hour that God gives because that's just the way this whole system is set up? Yeah. You know, I think if you are in an economic situation where you charge for the hour or yeah. you do piecework, right? Essentially, if you're an Uber driver or you're a lawyer, yeah. this is really problematic. You've got to be able to negotiate higher rates. But it is the case that there are some companies that have done this that have moved from having a big temporary workforce to a smaller number of permanent employees. Mm. And and I'm thinking, for example, there is a traditional Japanese inn that went from being open seven days a week to being open four days. Yeah. And part of how they made that work was moving from, you know, having 100 part-timers to like, you know, 30 full-timers or so. Their revenues tripled even though they were open less. Right. A kind of answer to the gig economy or an answer to worries that robots are going to take all our jobs. Mm -hmm. Because essentially what we're doing is – I think these companies demonstrate that by setting up the challenge of figuring out how to do the same kind of work in fewer hours, Mm. by giving workers essentially control over the means of production and control over the decisions about how automation gets brought into the workplace. You can have a very different set of outcomes in terms of whether work gets stabilized or destabilized, whether people are become more skilled or de-skilled, mm-hmm. and whether workplaces become more or less stable places in which to work. And so I think that while nobody goes into this trying to solve the problem of yeah. putting off the robot apocalypse, I think it actually does offer some clues about how we could shape technology and shape policy to and do, and do you do better. you sense that that is actually happening because if, for example if I'm Google right 
I'm worth a trillion dollars. I'm making more money than God. <laughs> and half of my workforce are contractors. Mm-hmm. And I'm collecting all of these rents and my, the founders are worth, you know, they're two of the five richest people in the world, et cetera. Why would I do this? Right. Why, I mean, why? Who cares? Like, I'm doing great. Google's going to take care of itself, yeah. right? And they don't need us to advise it about how to, how to be better. However, more than 90% of companies in the United States, more than 90% are small or medium-sized enterprises with yeah. fewer than 200 workers, and all but one company in the United States is, is not Google. And so if you are the owner of a company or you're an executive and you want to improve recruitment and retention, mm-hmm. you want to become more profitable – you want better work-life balance for yourself and your employees, and you're concerned about issues around innovation and creativity and professional development, the shorter work week makes sense. Places like you know Google, Facebook, Apple, they have like reached some sort of escape velocity when it comes to the normal rules of labor yes. markets and you know and sort <laughs> of in economics. The great Marxist economic historian Eugene Genovese said that, you know, capital was the great universal solvent of social relations. Mm. It is also, to a certain degree, a kind of universal solvent for, you know, the normal rules under which you know, labor markets apply yeah. if you if you can throw, push enough into it. You know, companies even that have a couple thousand people. I mean, I'm thinking of there's a Japanese e-commerce company called Zozo that implemented six-hour days a few years ago, even for fairly profitable mid-sized tech companies, this is something that turns out to allow them to attract like mid-level people from Microsoft and Google who, you know, are, you know, there may be 40, they've, you know, the second kid is on the way and they're looking at their careers and thinking, you know, I can no longer do the 18-hour days that that I could as a 23-year-old, I may not really need to. And it's suddenly pretty attractive to be at a place that recognizes that actually kind of anyone can sit in a chair for 12 hours a day and that will reward the capacity to make decisions, to focus, to prioritize so that you and your colleagues can get out of there at Three o'clock. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Is part of this generational. I'm in my 40s. I have two kids. Mm-hmm. You are preaching to the choir. <laughs> right. But if I'm 20 years younger... Mm-hmm. And, you know, kind of young and hungry and trying to make a name and move on up in the world or whatever. Do you see any shift? Because also people talk about millennial generations much different. Mm-hmm. They expect much more from their employers. They expect different things out of life, etc. Have you seen that this might also be getting pushed from kind of the bottom up? Mm-hmm. I think it is demographic. I don't know that it's generational in the sense that no matter whether you are a boomer or an Xer or a millennial, mm. you're going to have these challenges with work-life balance yeah. when you're a parent, yeah. right? And I think that it is interesting that lots of the companies that do this also spend fairly heavily on things like the one night a week where the whole company goes out and does paintball or right. what have you, or on professional development. There are one or two cases in the hundred or so companies that I looked at in the book that moved away from shorter hours because younger workers kind of had a challenge with it. And it was less about lifestyle than feeling like they didn't know their jobs well enough yet to be able to sort of to compress them. Right, right, right. And finally, I think that I actually have asked almost all the founders I talked to looking back were the long hours that you put in earlier in your career necessary? And almost all of them say yes, mm. that there is some value when you're young to developing the muscle memory in the kitchen yes. or the ability to to discover that you can actually do a lot more work than you thought you thought possible. But that this is not necessarily something that you should continue to have to do when you are, you know, right. 35. So I think it is something that is more obviously appealing to more experienced workers, but that's not a bad thing at all. You know, particularly in a world in which we have a significant proportion of professional or highly educated women who have to leave the workforce or take on part-time work mm. when they become parents. Well, I was going to ask you about the, the gender divide, obviously, is right. huge. Yeah, that becomes, you know, this is, this is a gigantic thing. One of the things, the really interesting things that happens is that kind of motherhood goes from being a penalty in conventional companies or mm. labor markets to being something for which women can demand a premium. In that, in companies where you do four-day weeks, you're looking for people who can ruthlessly prioritize, yeah. who can knock out the one thing and then the next thing and then the next, yeah, 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 you know, yeah. who have- Moms. Who, yeah, exactly. Right? <laughs> you know, who has that kind of time, that yeah, kind yeah, of time yeah, management yeah. skill yeah, and resilience? Yeah. It's mothers. A number of these companies talk about how not only do they discover that there's an opportunity to- attract a level of employee with the skills and seniority that they absolutely love but couldn't get any other way, Mm. but that there are also these time management and softer skills 
that come from being particularly a mom, but a parent generally, that are really valuable to them. You know, this is the other reason that it tends, these things are both attractive to working parents and the moms, and also why working parents and moms are more attractive to these companies. The idea of switching motherhood from a penalty to a premium. Yeah. You know, it's something that a couple of these founders are really proud of, though, Mm -hmm. as one of them said, it's great that we're able to do this, that we're able to bring, you know, bring these incredibly talented, dedicated women back into the workforce. But it's also made me realize that every woman in my life has been talking to me about this my entire life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And only now we're finally starting to like deal with the problem. <laughs> and in the book, the other thing I found interesting was that you profile lots of companies. Mm-hmm. And a few of them have like thousands of employees, a pretty decent size. And you alluded to it earlier. The people who do this or try to do this, the companies are usually small. Mm-hmm. They're usually still led by the founder. Mm-hmm. And they're usually so kind of in a kind of creative world or known for being a creative company anyway, or, you know, that's part of their brand. Right. Because I'm just thinking again, if I'm professional chief executive and I've got shareholders to answer to, I mean, you put this out in a press release and then the stock drops 10%, I would guess. <laughs> so it does feel like in a way what you're suggesting is kind of trying to push water uphill. Mm-hmm. My response to that is that, these companies have demonstrated that you get benefits in productivity, in profitability, in recruitment, and in professional development. And if you can identify which one of those things your shareholders and your mm. board don't want, we can look at ways, right. you know, sort of to make that happen. But strictly as a business decision, strictly as a piece of organizational and corporate strategy, the evidence is pretty good that this and makes a lot of sense. Is there much evidence beyond obviously these companies you've gone all over the world? You found these companies. Mm-hmm. Is there re- is there like a body of academic or other type of evidence that shows people who work less are better? Yes. So you know we have known for more than a hundred years, thanks to or of organizational specialists or industrial engineers mm-hmm. or folks that. Overwork, sustained periods of overwork are counterproductive. Whether you are a factory, whether you are a police department or hospital, humans are designed for kind of high energy bursts for a while. We can put up with a few weeks of long hours, but months turn out to be bad both for individuals and for organizations. Likewise, there is plenty of evidence about how having more leisure time, having more opportunities for detachment, for really like getting your head out of the office are good for people both as workers, but also as a strategy for avoiding stuff like heart disease or long-term health problems. So if you're a company that has 100,000 workers and ultimately may have 100,000 retirees, as a strategy just for cutting down on your long-term healthcare costs... This is like a non-trivial thing. So how did we get to a place then where being a workaholic is a good thing? You know, I think part of it is that especially since you know, the 70s and 80s, 
are great models of success have not been people who, you know, started in the mailroom and, you know, put in their time, paid their dues and worked their way up the company, right? They come from Silicon Valley and Wall Street. Mm -hmm. These are, you know, people who become billionaires by 30, you know, and they do so by working 100 hour weeks, you know, moving mountains and doing sort of, et cetera. Our model has shifted from the person who is steadily successful to the person who is a success overnight. Another, I think, is that technology has made it possible for us to carry our offices around in our pockets and to be always on and always accessible, which has translated from a technical ability to be always on to like the normative expectation that you are always on. We essentially come to imitate the qualities of our devices. And then I think as we have moved from being principally a manufacturing economy to a knowledge economy, it's been harder to measure productivity and output. At the end of the day, you don't have a what big basket the, of widgets. Yeah, that what is the end made. of the day? Right. And so under those circumstances, working time becomes a proxy for you know, order for productivity. It also becomes a thing that you can demonstrate to your employer that in an increasingly insecure economy where career ladders have or have broken, you're the guy who shouldn't be laid off. Yeah. You know, the final thing is that we have a kind of culture in which overwork has become either cool, if you have a choice about it, Mm -hmm. or a kind of grim necessity if you don't have a choice about it. But fundamentally, it has become the default. You know, and I think all of those things together are the examples of the Elon Mm. Musks and the Steve Jobs, the technology, sort of the difficulty in measuring productivity, and that kind of worry about whether, or that sense that, you know, you can never go wrong by spending a little more time at the office. Yeah. All of these things conspire to create a world in which overwork seems both inescapable and inevitable. And it's often really difficult to look at something that seems so natural and to think, does it really have to be this way? Yeah, as you say, it's about survival yeah. in a way, in a yes. very basic way. Yes. And we can kind of end this here, but like just this idea of, I mean, here we are in Silicon Valley, the home of automation and of everything. I and everybody else who writes about stuff out here and writing a lot about AI mm-hmm. and machine learning and how it is really coming on leaps and bounds and how it's not just blue collar jobs are coming forward. It's white collar jobs. It's everything. Right. And so there's this, there is this sense of insecurity. Mm-hmm. And so the idea that'd be like, I'm going to work 30 hours a week and that's going to be okay. Mm -hmm. Just those two don't feel like they can exist at the same time. You know, I think that continuing to work longer hours makes sense if you can actually outwork a machine. If you can put in longer hours than the algorithm or the robot, go for it. Yeah. However, if you can't actually perform at hour 25 as well as you did at hour zero, then maybe you got to take your work in a different direction. And I think that in the long run, people have talked about how the four-day week offers environmental benefits, yeah. you know, energy savings, that kind of lower carbon footprint for companies, less commuting. All those things seem to be true, though the exact percentage is something that we still haven't quite figured yeah. out. What it also offers is a vision for a future of work in which we're not competing with machines, but rather we are 
giving people the opportunity to figure out how to use technologies in ways that augment and extend their own abilities rather than compete with them. You think about robot, you know, let's say, you know, robotics yeah. and AI, and this can play out in very different kinds of ways, depending on who it is who controls the automation. Mm. So, you know, you think in medicine, for example, about how radiology is getting gutted mm. by machine learning systems that do a really, really good job of, you know, reading x-rays. Robots have not taken over in surgery, partly yeah. because, you know, surgery actually is a lot harder mm -hmm. because it turns out to be a deeply collaborative thing. It's not just, you know, opening someone up and doing stuff and closing them back up. It involves entire teams of people. Yeah. But also because surgeons have done a much better job at kind of leading in the introduction of surgical robotics. Mm. And surprise, surprise, one of the things that happens when surgeons are in charge is surgeons don't become obsolete. And you can see this play out likewise with the introduction of military technologies mm -hmm. or in the sciences. You know, incredible amounts of scientific research are now automated, but the scientific community is bigger than ever. Why is that? Well, it's because there isn't another group of people automating the scientific profession, like disrupting science. You know, they aren't being automated. Right. They're doing it themselves. Right. And so what that means is that they continue to you know, to use those time savings that you used mm. to spend adding up long columns of numbers yeah. or doing, regre yeah, you know, yeah. doing regression analyses by hand yeah. and doing more research. And one of the things that I consistently see in companies that are moving to four-day weeks is that they don't shed work workers. They often expand, yeah. partly because they have enough business so that they need to hire more people. And well, it was like the um, restaurant in Edinburgh that mm -hmm. you that you profiled, which is super interesting. And the guy was basically about to burn out, lose right. his family, whatever, all of it. Goes to a four-day week, produces better food, and is more busy than ever and making more money. Yeah. You know, the workforce is happier and... There's very, very low turnover. Yeah. And he's actually just opened a second restaurant. A couple it's a big ago. leap, though. Yeah, it is. It is. But I think. But to that, your point, it's yeah. around, it's like, it's kind of happens out of necessity, basically. Mm -hmm. You either yeah. become a parent or you drop, not dead, but pass out from overwork, whatever it may be, mm -hmm. and you have a moment. Yeah. That sounds kind of pedestrian, or it's, you know, the jump from realizing that you got to make a change mm. or you're going to burn out and you're going to crash your company to like staving off the robot apocalypse kind of sounds like a big <laughs> jump, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, but one of the things you see in the history of technology and the history of business is that, you know, is that revolutions often emerge out of solutions to very everyday problems, mm. right? The problem of how do you know if you're making money or not? Or, you know, how do you, how do you keep track of your accounts in the 1400s gives rise to stuff like double ledger bookkeeping. And, you know, the industrial revolution begins with a whole bunch of little problems in things like, you know, how do you make muskets with parts that right. you don't have to file down by hand yeah. every single time? Those sound like really ordinary things, but of course they lead to you know, they lead to revolutionary changes in the way that we think about capital, the yeah. way, you know, 
part of the way we can organize factories, the way we can organize work. And I think that it turns out the story of the four-day week is one that starts off with efforts to solve a lot of really simple problems, simple everyday problems that lead to companies rethinking the nature of labor and of time mm. and design the social thinking. contract. Design thinking, as you yeah, say. And engaging in a kind of design thinking exercise yeah. that ultimately gets them to question in a very productive way everything about how they work. So you think we will eventually get unstuck from the 40-hour 40, 40 work week? You know, it's happened before. Or, you know, let's put it this way. If we can move from six days to five. Which we did. Which we did. You know, in China, they moved from a six-day week to a five-day week in 1995. Hmm. Right? This is, there are some, comp- some countries where this is a very recent thing. Yeah, it's possible. I think what we're seeing is a global movement that is only now becoming aware of itself and only now developing the kind of critical mass that allows companies that are fast followers Hmm. to say, you know, maybe enough evidence actually is here so that we can try this ourselves and not come crashing down. Right. You know, and I hope that, that part of what the book does is, you know, make that case and give more people the confidence once they are parents or once they're looking at that point where they got to make a change or bad things will happen, that they can have the confidence to say, yeah, you know, actually, this is something worth trying. It can be good for me and it can be good for my business. I hope it happens. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks very much. Oh, thank you. And that is all the time we have today. So I ask again, how much are you working? I know I work way more than 40 hours a week. Um, But I also know that after having kids, I do do a lot more in less time. I used to work even crazier hours. So I think there is something here. Obviously, I think we're a long way from this becoming like an actual thing that is common. But here's to hoping. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I will be writing about, what am I writing? I'm writing about Facebook and tax this week. Very exciting. Check that out. I think I will be writing something on this in the paper, maybe this week, maybe another week. That's in the Times, of course, the Sunday Times, or online at thetimes.co.uk. And have a fabulous weekend. Bye-bye.